Time now to talk college sports with Ron Barker. Ron Barker joined the Pac-10 as an assistant commissioner for governance and enforcement in October of 2001 and was promoted to associate commissioner in February of 2006. We're going to talk with him as he joins us right now on the Smart Rain Guest Line. July is considered Smart Irrigation Month. To celebrate Best of State Award winner, Smart Rain is giving away free smart controllers to commercial properties until the end of July. Hosting costs not included. Visit SmartRain.net or call 877-346-3333 for more information. Ron, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Good. So, Ron, you are a former BYU assistant basketball coach under Roger Reed, and then you eventually graduated to cracking skulls in the Pac-10. I'm sorry, did I embellish that too much? No, that's pretty much what I did. (laughs) Okay. All right. All right, so uh, I think a lot of people driving around, you know, have heard stories about how much cheating is going on. And as a longtime member of the media, I have heard spectacular stories. And I will say, when is the last year that you were involved in the uh, con- conference governance? So I left the Pac-12 in October of this past year, October 2020. So I was there for 19 years, and I was involved in everything that went on during that time. The most, some of the most recent stuff. There's still an ongoing FBI men's basketball investigation involving about 20 schools, and I was in the middle of that. And, I don't know why it's taking the NCAA law so long, but it does sometimes, and this one's taking forever. Okay, so you basically stole 90% of my question. You're a BYU guy, and I'm not, so I was going to say, why does it take the NBA so bleeping, or the NBA, the NCAA so bleeping long? But can you explain to people why, if there's FBI wiretaps, we're sitting around a couple years later and nothing's happened to some of these schools? Yeah, so anytime law enforcement gets involved, it just extends the process. The NCAA usually takes a wait and, and wait for the law enforcement to get done before they'll move on it. So, you know, this one's taking forever. The, the uh, Marcy Blues case where the parents were driving uh, coaches and making them look like they were athletes so they could get their kids into schools, that's still ongoing with the NCAA as well, too, as well, even though some of the parents have served prison time and been out of prison for a while. So it just takes a while. If it doesn't involve the, uh, law enforcement, then you can get it done more more quickly. But even then, it'll still take up to a year. The, the Reggie Bush USC case that I worked on took four years, and even to this day, they don't know for sure. They people don't know what actually happened in that one. Okay. Side note on the Reggie Bush deal. So his parents got a new home in Spring Valley. This will shock you, but I didn't actually grow up in San Diego. I grew up in the suburb of Spring Valley. And I lived on the western edge by Sweetwater Lake when I was in elementary school. And then in junior high and high school, between 7th and 8th grade, we moved out to kind of the eastern edge, Steel Canyon, where that new high school is out there. For the life of me, when you're Reggie Bush, how do you not end up with a house in La Jolla? What do you do with a house in Spring Valley? Can you shed any light on what happened there? Because... I've lived in Spring Valley. You're Reggie Bush. Yeah, so this is a perfect example. Since you're from there, I'm from Orange County, California. Uh-huh. At the time, everyone kept making a big deal about, oh, he's living in a three-quarter of a million-dollar house. They didn't get the house. They just lived there for free for a year. So they didn't get the house, they, but they lived there. But I kept telling the NCAA people, look, three-quarters of a million dollars in San Diego isn't the same as three-quarters of a million dollars in Indianapolis. And that took a long time for them to get that through their heads. And I said, go out to San Diego and look at the house, and you'll see what we're talking about. But in the Reggie Bush case, 
the, Reggie Bush's stepdad was going to start a sports marketing firm with a guy named, uh, I'm not even going to names, but they're with the guy who's well known, and Reggie Bush didn't know they were doing it. And so the, the NCAA kept trying to link it to USC, saying USC is involved in this, and every time they tried to tie it to Pete Carroll, they struck out. So I actually sat between Pete Carroll and Lane Kiffin at the hearing, and they kept trying to figure out how is USC involved in this, and they never really tied it much to USC except for a couple of phone calls between an assistant coach and the guy who was doing this with Reggie Bush's stepdad. And in some of the interviews we found out, we found out why some of those phone calls were going on. So I'm not an apologist for USC by any means. I've worked at the Pac-12 or 11 schools, wanted to see them go down. But at the, that was one of probably one of the biggest miscarriages of justice for actually what USC was involved in doing. So I think people assume that over the years USC has cheated a lot. But I think people assume that in the last 10 to 15 years – Oregon's been doing their fairest cheating, and nothing worse than the Will Willie Lyles, that lame explanation, I didn't know who you were talking about. Oh, please. So how guilty is Oregon of using middlemen and runners to get athletes, and is UCLA not doing that? And is that the biggest difference between how much Chip Kelly won in Oregon and how much he isn't winning at UCLA? No, I think the big thing with the Oregon case at the time with Willie Lyles was Everybody was doing that, what, what Oregon was doing. Oregon got caught. I used to laugh uh, and say at the Pac-12, you know, there, some of our schools are doing what everybody's doing. We're just not as good at it. And so when Oregon got caught doing something that probably 70% of the schools were doing at the time, it was just another case of, okay, so the, you need to get better at how you do this, which I shouldn't say that. But there, there are things going on that everybody does. It's like speeding on the freeway. That's the example I used to use. You're driving on the California freeways. Hardly anybody's going 65, and if a policeman pulls you over and you're going 75, you can't say, well, look, everybody's doing it. You're the one who got caught. And so that's what happens a lot in college sports is somebody gets caught for doing something that everybody's doing. Um, you know, I, I, what I'm trying to do now, I left. I wasn't able to talk about my cases. I wasn't able to talk about what I was doing. And so for 20 years, I sat and worked, and people would come up to me, my friends who knew what I was doing, and say, you know, tell me what's going on here, and I couldn't. So the stories that are out there, people don't have a, a kind of, you kind of get the, uh, the subterfuge a little bit, and the, the media covers a little bit on the top, and then it's forgotten. So people don't really know the details of what's going on. So what I'm trying to do now is write fictional books based on actual cases. So the first one I wrote is called The Reluctant Players, and it's on Amazon. It's, it's about a junior college basketball coach who basically taught, taught his two-star players how to cheat on a math class, a correspondence math class, and then once they did and were successful in it, he then blackmailed them and said, if you don't go to this Division One school that I'm going to get hired at, I'm going to expose you. And, and that, that happened? Kind of that goes on. And that yeah, happened? That happened. Actually, true case, yes. Tell us which league. I'm not going to tell you. I'm oh, not come gonna on. Because one of the purposes for me is I don't want to expose people that have gone through things 20 years ago. If someone's guilty... You know, you can go and read about they're all the innocent people that got caught up in The two players in this, they cheated on a math class, which isn't great, but then they got blackmailed into going into a school they didn't want to go to with a coach they didn't like, and it ruined their careers. They never ended up doing anything. They were both pretty good players. So the SEC, huh? I was at the NCAA for about two and a half, almost three years, enough to see what, how, how messed up it is and how hard it is to be in enforcement there. I worked SEC cases quite a bit. I worked all over the place at the NCAA. And, you know, there's things that go on that people have no clue about, and you get a tip of the iceberg when someone big gets caught. 
that when the stuff that's going on day to day after day, unless it's a big school, people don't care that much about it. So do do SEC schools cheat more, and do they cheat more competently? Those are two different things, but the quality and the quantity of the cheating, that's the perception. How close is it to the reality? You know, I don't know that you can say anyone cheats more. or You know, sometimes it's just someone, there's, you know, the pack, when there's the Pac-10, I used to process 250 violations a year. So that was about 25 per school. And most of them weren't cheating as much as someone just made a mistake. And what the goal was to try to teach them from it, put a little penalty on it, and then move on and hope they don't do it again. When you get to the bigger stuff, the, the actual real cheating, it takes a concerted effort to do it and get away with it. And so there's not as much as people that's going on, but the, what is going on is very well organized. And so the people who have the most money, I think, are the ones who are, ones are able to do it better. They know how to do it. I, I don't accuse anybody. I have a lot of good friends. Greg Sankey and I are good friends with Commissioner of the SEC. So I don't accuse anybody. I just think there are some people that are better than others. Okay, so we're joined right now by uh, former BYU assistant basketball coach Ron Barker, coached uh, under Roger Reed, late 80s, early 90s, and then head of compliance for Pac-12, was there for a couple decades. And you know, because of your time at the NCAA, some of the stuff they have nationally. So PK and I have been doing the radio show since 2002. And before that, we moved to the market in 92, 93. So we've heard a lot of stuff. And... Stuff that we believe is true, but we can't prove because one angry person leaks it, but you don't have it confirmed by somebody else, and you know there's an agenda, so you got to be super careful. But there's been enough stuff out there, both locally, regionally, and nationally, that we kind of get a feel for what's going on, even if we can't prove any individual specific case. You're writing these books. Are you ever going to write a book about a star athlete who everyone knows, who not only got paid to go to school, but was able to charge as much as 25000 for a home visit because it helped the other schools recruit to say they were in on this star player and a home visit held them recruit other star players who wanted to play with said player. So I'm, everything I'm going to write is going to be fictional based mm-hmm. on real cases. Right. So I'm never going to point the finger and say, hey, who's doing this and, and this is what's happening. Right. That's not my goal. I don't want to do that. I've 20 years lived that. I am writing real cases. This is a real case. I believe this is a real case. I believe yeah. that really and happened. I, I, when I was at the NCAA, I investigated a case that you can go and read about where the high school coach of the, the player's mom was illiterate and had no dad in the picture. So the high school coach is the one shopping the player around. He charged $5,000 for every visit to a school, and multiple schools took it. And then when he finally sold the guy, sold his own player to a school and took, I think it was $25,000 about a Ford Explorer, the assistant high school coach blew the whistle. And I'm sitting in Memphis, Tennessee at midnight talking to this assistant coach, sitting there going, wait, what you're telling me is so incredulous. How can you tell us? How can you're coming forward? And he said, I was supposed to get a car, too, and I didn't get one. And that's why he came forward with it. The high school coach eventually got brought up on charges and served jail time. And I believe it was an old statute on the book about slavery and selling a human being. And that's what they got him on. So stuff like that goes on. And that that involves some pretty big schools. The school, you know, there's four or five people at the NCAA working on it. And my particular point of it was one school that was paying for for the high school coach to bring the kid on a visit. 
and we're able to do that. You know, just to give you an example of things, my very last case at the NCAA that I was involved with was Rick Majerus. And I told Utah when I came, I said, look, I used to work at BYU. I want to be fair. I want to be on the up and up. And I have no ax to grind. I like Rick Majerus. I thought he was a great coach. And the NCAA couldn't get over to, well, he's living in a hotel. And I said, yeah, he lives in the hotel. So when he takes a kid on a, a dinner, you know, you can take an occasional meal back at the time, and he took a player to dinner at the hotel, that's his home. And the NCAA said, no, that's not permissible. And so they went after him for a whole bunch of stuff, for having pizza at practice and just dumb stuff. And I kept sitting there going, you mean there's all this stuff going on, and we're going after a coach for taking the kid to dinner where he lives at the hotel? And that was the kind of stuff that drove me crazy at the NCAA when there's big, big stuff going on. But the NCAA's got their hands tied. They you know, have no subpoena powers. They can't talk, get people to force them to talk to them. They can't lie about what they're doing. You know, it's, it's a, almost a miracle to catch anything at all. Now that name, image, and likeness money is legal, for lack of a better term, can the money essentially be laundered? Money that was being paid to get kids to certain schools and all that, can they now just find a booster, a business to take care of a kid? And so is a lot of what was illegal going to be legal? Well, when they were talking name, image, and likeness, and I was in on the conversations, I would be the only one in the room with the experience of doing enforcement. And I would sit there going, wait a second. So what you're telling me now is if I'm a booster at a big school and have unlimited money, I can tell a high school kid, hey, I'm going to do a T-shirt business for you. You're going to make so much per T-shirts, and we're going to guarantee you're going to sell 100,000 T-shirts. And everyone would go, no, no, you can't do it as part of incentive and recruiting. I'm like, how are you going to catch that? So you basically, to catch a booster could actually do that and, and have agreement with the kid in advance that we are going to give you this amount of money as long as nobody can prove that he had that agreement as a recruiting tool. So, yes, that's going to happen. I, I think it's naive to think it's not going to happen. So are we going to get to the point then that the only schools that get busted are the ones where law enforcement gets involved for one reason or another, and those cases will probably be few and far between? Or you're going to, that's one possibility. You're also going to have cases, which I've had before, where a family feels like what's going on is terrible, so they tape record coaches or play or the boosters telling them things in advance. So if you can get some kind of proof of that, then, then you're able to get that. The case I worked on that I wrote the book on, The Reluctant Players, it, it, one of the reasons that we've had tough, a tough time getting is how do you prove that a school is going to hire a coach if he brings players with him? You know, that's almost impossible to prove that in this particular case, there was an ex-wife with an axe to grind who had all of the proof and mailed it to me anonymously, and I got everything shown with the cheating on the test, showing who helped and how they did it, and that's the only way you catch this kind of stuff. Do you think that... I used, to, oh, go ahead. I used to talk to coaches and say, they'd complain about something, and I'd say, how can I prove that? And they'd say, well, I'm not going to talk on the record. And I said, well, if I don't get you on the record, then how do I prove it? And they'd say... Well, I'll give you advance notice, and we'll film it for you, and we'll send it to you. You know, and, and so that, you know, it takes a coach getting really mad because one of the big problems is coaches don't turn each other in, but then they complain about all the cheating that goes on. And so it's hard to do that. But, yeah, it's going to take either law enforcement or it's going to take somebody that has enough of an axe to grind that they're going to go and tape it themselves or film it themselves. Ron Barker, former head of compliance for the Pac-12 and a BYU assistant basketball coach from 1989 to 91, joining us. So, in the past, there have been cases where boosters want to hang out with star athletes and take them on trips and vacations, and the NCAA would go after people for that kind of stuff. But under name, image, and likeness, is that all going to be okay now? If you have money and you want to buddy up uh, to some star athlete, is that okay? 
No, you have to. There has to be some kind of of service rendered. That they can't just have. You know, you could you can get really creative and find ways to do what you want to do, but there has to be. You can't just say I want to be a buddy and take this person to wherever Vegas or wherever. You have to say we're going to go there and we're going to have an autograph signing show or something of that nature where the athlete is actually doing something. So, but it's going to be interesting to watch this unfold. Right now, I think everybody's really the alarmist, and there's not going to be that many kids who profit a lot off of it. But every kid that is from a small town can go back and do a summer camp at that town and make a little bit of money. And when when I started in college athletics. My attitude used to be athletes shouldn't get paid. They're getting college scholarships. I work my butt off to get the same thing they're getting, and they get tutors, and they get, you know, it's it's really a good deal for the athlete, and they, and they get a degree that is worth how much money the rest of their life. I've completely changed. I'm 180 degrees different because you have coaches making five, six, seven million dollars, commissioners making five million dollars. So why shouldn't the student athletes get their share? I, I've changed in, in that regard over the last 20 years. So, give me one more book idea you're working on that you haven't written yet, but you're gonna you're gonna get to it. You got the knowledge. Well, I'm working on my uh, the second one's almost done, and the third one I'm just starting. It's about a, a school that had a star running back, and he ended up he was a 19 year old inner city kid and had an affair with the head of compliance at the school, who was a 30 year old woman, who was very prim and proper. And when I did the interview, the kid kept telling me that she was giving him things. And I said, you know, I talked to her and I've talked to you. No offense to you, but do you have any kind of proof? And I talked to him several times. I just didn't believe him. He hands me his phone and shows me text messages with the most vulgar things I'd ever read in my life from that 30 year old head of compliance. And when I confronted her with it, she said, uh, and got up and walked out of the room with her attorney and, and left, left her job completely disappeared. In the middle of the case, the star football player got into an altercation at a dance club totally unrelated and ended up stabbing and killing somebody who was also a former player at the school. When they called me the next day, it was on Saturday morning, I thought he killed the woman. And I was like, oh my goodness, I can't believe this just happened. It just like it makes you feel sick. And then I found out it was unrelated, still terrible. That player obviously no longer plays. He's in jail, I think. I, I don't know if he's on death row or if he just got a lifetime sentence. But those are the kind of things that happen you just don't hear about. Well, you stunned Jake and I right there at the end of the interview with that. Holy cow. Yeah, the, the, the one, you know, the, the, the first one I wrote, the reason I picked it is because it's just such an easy thing to understand. What this coach did, he's the junior college coach, he said to the two players, you have to take the correspondence class because you can't pass the math class. Then he wore gloves every time he touched paperwork because he had been involved in a violation earlier at another school. He helped him with the test. He went to two tutors for the junior college who are 18-year-old girls who, who had no clue what he was doing. And he went to one and said, these players have to do the even problems. If you'll do the odd problems, he can work, they'll see how you work it out, and they'll be able to do it. And then he went to the other one and said the exact opposite. So the girls were doing everything, not knowing it. Then he would take the papers. The players would copy them over in their own handwriting, and then he would turn it in. When he came to the final exam, he had to have a proctor, so he went to the superintendent of the state of schools for the state of Mississippi, not in what school that, who was a buddy of his, and said, hey, will you proctor this exam? I'll bring some beer out. We'll watch a game while they take it. And so they sat in the guy's house and copied over a final exam that the coach had had, had the girls do right by covering it up when he made it so it didn't say final exam. Then they passed it all. Everything's going great. And then he goes to the kids and says, 
hey, so you're going to get exposed. I'm going to, I'm going to tell everyone what you did. It would be such a shame unless you go to school X. And then he got hired there. When this all got proved and I interviewed him, he had been fired by this time. He was getting his law degree, and I interviewed him in the state Supreme Court chambers where he was in, uh, clerking for the state Supreme Court. So you can't make this stuff up. I mean, it's just unbelievable, these kind of things that happen. And I think people would be interested in reading going, hmm, this is just an actual real case. This is how it unfolds. You kind of see how the NCA works and some of the limitations. You see when they screw up. And so I'm trying to give a shed light on something that people just don't know much about. Because even when I'm working, when I was working the USC case, I used to read the media reports, and no, it's not the media's fault. They just don't have the the understanding of how the NCA process works and how how weird it is. And so I would read things on ESPN and go, man, that's completely wrong with what's happening. But I couldn't talk, and I wasn't going to talk to anybody. So I'm hoping through this to kind of shed a little bit more light so people can read the books and go, oh, oh. And then when you'll see a future case, maybe you won't be so quick to judge or just rush to judgment. Maybe you'll want to hear a little bit more and be able to think a little bit more critically about, okay, here's what I'm reading, but what actually is going on? And, and I think you'll be able to understand things a little bit more clearly. So where can people get these books? The first book's on Amazon. If you type in Ron Barker or The Reluctant Players, it's there. The second one I'm pretty close to having done. I think I can do two a year is what I'm thinking. So I'm hoping to have – I've already laid it out six to eight books, and I can do more than that, but that's just to see if it gets going. Ultimately, I'd like to do get into a TV show like Law & Order Meets the Sports World. When I was at the Pac-12, I got approached twice by TV people. One time it was just someone wanted to do a reality show, and I said, you can't do this in a reality show because – who in the middle of an investigation is going to give up and find the rights away and, and let everyone explode? And that's not going to happen. And then the other time I got flown out by the guy who worked for David Letterman in Worldwide Pants, and they wanted me that they wanted to talk to me about it. And I thought, oh, this is going to be good. And they, they loved it and they thought it was fascinating. And then they said, okay, thanks. And I went, well, why did you fly me out here? And the guy said, well, we only do comedy. And I said, okay, so why am I here? And he said, oh, we had money left in our research budget. We just wanted to talk to you. We think this is fascinating. <laughs> and so, you know, it's just so weird. That guy ended up producing the movie Concussion with, with Will Smith, and he stayed in touch with me. He thinks it's a great idea, and he's trying to sell it around. But, you know, I just, every time he talks to me, I'm like, ah, I don't know how much pull he has in Hollywood. It's not my world. I don't know it. So, but I keep thinking that would be a great TV show. I think that kind of stuff in Hollywood, there's a lot of stuff that's on the back burner and only a small percentage ever gets to the front burner, but you just have to stay in touch with people who have stuff on the back burner because nobody really ever knows what's going to get made. Yeah, and for me, I couldn't talk for 20 years about my job. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of now all of a sudden, I'm, even these interviews, like right now, I'm sitting there going, how much can I say? How much can't I say? And, and I, again, I don't have a bad, bad, evil bone in my body. I don't want to burn people. I don't, it's not my desire to expose people. But I'd like to have people understand the process and hear some interesting stories. I go out and do uh, corporate speaking gigs and do motivational talks, and I tell a lot of these stories. And so people are fascinated by it. When I worked for the Pac-12, and then people would say, what do you do? And I'd say, I worked for the Pac-12. They either were fascinated and went, whoa, or they'd go, oh, the phone company? So that's the two extremes <laughs> you get. you know. So I never took it that seriously. Well, Ron, we appreciate a few minutes. Thanks for coming on, and we will uh, we'll have you on again. We appreciate it. Great. I'll be happy to talk to you. If you ever have an NCAA enforcement thing that comes up and you need some source, give me a call. I'm happy to talk to you, but thanks for the time. All right. Ron Barker, former head of compliance for the Pac-12 and a BYU assistant basketball coach from 1989 to 91. DJ and PK. Man, there's some jaw-dropping stories right there.
He told stories I didn't even know to ask the questions about. Holy cow. All right, DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone.